Hi, and welcome to this latest episode of Sepad Pod, the sectarianism proxies and desectarianization podcast based at Lancaster University and funded by Carnegie Corporation. I'm Simon Mabon, and today I'm really excited to be joined by, by a good friend of mine, a fellow Arsenal fan, and someone who's ridden extensively on, on a range of different aspects of, of Middle Eastern politics. And his CV is, is incredibly thorough, and I'm really looking forward to seeing where this, this conversation goes. So I'm really pleased and excited to welcome Kave Esani, Assistant Professor of International Studies at DePaul University. Kave, thank you so much for joining us today. Lovely to be with you, Simon. I'm really excited, Kave. We've been trying to set this date in the diary for a long time, and I'm, I'm curious to know what was driving you in your in your work to do what you've done, which, which, as I said, is so very varied. So can you give us a bit of an inkling? What what got you interested in, in going into politics, first of all, please? Sure. Um, um... I, I would say that, uh, like a lot of uh, people from my generation, I was kind of uh, hooked uh, and, you know, my life was transformed by the Iranian revolution in 1978-79. Sure. Uh, I had just come to the U.S. Um, I, I did my high school in England. Um, and then I came to U.S. to go to college. Um, and, uh, you know, that's just when the Iranian revolution happened. Um, and, uh, you know, my whole generation basically could not stand aside. You know, our lives were transformed. Uh, our outlooks were altered. Uh, relations with our families were severed. Uh, we all, you know, most of us, many of us became engaged in uh, at distance or closer uh, emotionally, practically, um, in at all level, you know, with what was going on in Iran. And I was no exception. So I became interested in, uh, in what was taking place. I became politically active. Uh, I became a supporter of various uh, organizations on the left, uh, you know, Marxian organizations. Sure. Uh, yeah while I was in the U.S. And uh, gradually, I would say, I mean, I started studying engineering, but uh, because of my political engagements, I uh, I changed uh, my course of studies. Um, you know, I shifted to studying philosophy and economics, uh, then uh, planning. Uh, I went to graduate school to study geography because I was interested in space. But in whatever I did academically, uh, my priority was always to kind of uh, meld it and link it to what was taking place in, in Iran. And at the same time, I remained uh, intellectually uh, and politically engaged with what was taking place there. And, you know, in terms of debates, in terms of, uh, you know, activism, in terms of intellectual production. So that's, you know, the, you know that, that event in history really kind of shaped my, uh, my destiny in some ways. Yeah. And it continues to do so. I can imagine. What were, can you uh, sort of recall some of the memories that you have of the, of the revolutionary period? If you were to look back on it, what would you, what would you associate with that time? Well, uh, uh, that's, a, that's a great question. Um, I think many of us don't kind of uh, think back because uh, so much water has yeah. <laughs> flown under the bridge. Um, I think it's, it, it changed, I mean, at so many levels. Uh, the events of 78, 79, um, 
transform the horizon of possibilities. Um, you know, the if you recall, I mean, the the monarchy, the Shah's regime was uh, an all-powerful state. And, uh, you know, in the Middle East, we often kind of use this word revolution um, uh, rather loosely. I mean, uh, you know, you, popular uprisings are often referred to, you know, or even coup d'etats by junior army officers in Egypt, for example, are referred to as revolution. You know, which they do bring about political transformations, but often we're referring to elites kind of uh, making these things happen. Um, but the Iranian revolution was a sustained, uh, primarily nonviolent uh, mass uprising, mass strike that persisted for two years. And pretty much everybody was engaged in it one way or another, mostly on the side of the revolution, but, uh, you know, some also on the side of the monarchy, but very far fewer. And when the state was brought down, when the monarchy fell, uh, the fact was that uh, all the existing institutions, uh, property relations, uh, uh, you know, family structures, um, extended family, uh, you know, uh, connections and all that, all those were altered. They were completely yeah. transformed. And uh, at some level, you were left on your own. And it kind of seemed that, you know, things had to be remade from the bottom up. And this was very much the experience that uh, my generation had. And that's what I've actually worked on. That's what really fascinated me. So if you go, I mean, like Michel Foucault had it right on, on the Iranian revolution. It was really this, uh, this moment of wild freedom uh, that kind of questioned all the structures of uh, existing structures of power at all levels, not just at the state level, but yeah. much more also at, at the local grassroots level. Uh, so, you know, that's that's what has stayed with me. And I've tried to kind of analyze and understand it ever since. It's it's really interesting hearing you say this, because if you if you look at your your body of work and I guess it's it's difficult for you to do. But as, as an outsider, I'm, I'm looking at the things that you've written. And and after hearing that answer, a lot of it and a lot of the direction that you go in makes makes a great deal of sense that you're trying to understand those possibilities and interrogate those power relations in a range of different areas. Is that something that, that you were you were trying to do or, or were you driven purely by by intellectual curiosity that's that pulled you meandering through all these different areas? Yeah. Well, um, I would say um, it's a combination. Um, there are many, you know, there were many practical factors involved. I mean, I was very much interested in kind of uh, theory, in uh, uh, kind of abstract intellectual, um, um, you know, uh, examination of yeah. what was going on. But at the same time, I mean, this is, you know, life intervenes. So. I, you know, in the 1980s, which was at the height of the Iran-Iraq war, um, a civil war had occurred in Iran where secular forces and uh, the left were basically decimated. They, you know, they had a crisis, internal crisis, as the new generation really kind of questioned, uh, you know, uh, existing um, uh, orthodoxies uh, and their leadership, but at the same time, you know, the regime as it was establishing itself really kind of uh, crushed uh, its opposition quite violently. 
Um, and, uh, you know, at the same time, you know, I, we, people like me couldn't go back to Iran and I really wanted to go back. Uh, I wanted to be able to go there to, to study, to, you know, to hang around, to be there. Yeah. At the same time, I did not believe in the war, in the Iran-Iraq war. Um, so I did not want to get, be recruited. So I needed to keep my student status. And one of the, the only way you could do it at that time was to kind of do something, uh, you know, engage yourself in a field of study that was uh, acceptable to the Islamic Republic as something useful for the country. And those were mainly kind of science, technology, practical things. So I, although I was studying philosophy, I also engaged in economics because that was one of the fields that they accepted. So there were these practical considerations um, that as much you know, shaped my uh, outlook as, uh, as my own personal priorities. So sure, I became yeah. interested in, you know, I became involved in, <clears throat> in development planning uh, because you know that would allow me to to travel legitimately as a as a student back to Iran and and to work there and gradually I became really interested and saw the the relevance and importance of it. So a lot of my work kind of was accidental, you know, the, the directions that it took. Yeah. And then like every any scholar, you know, when you do field work, when you do ethnography, when you engage in something, you know, you start kind of breaking the barriers of uh, your preconceptions and you see other things of interest and you kind of, you wander in various directions. So, um, you know, I did my, uh, you know, I was doing my PhD at Johns Hopkins in geography. So I, in the late 1980s, I, you know, right after the Iran-Iraq war, I went to study um, what had happened in rural areas in this one province of Iran in Khuzestan, which is kind of like the epicenter of modernity in Iran, because the oil industry was, uh, you know, established there. Um, the, you know, the big international agribusinesses that kind of transformed rural Iran in the 1950s, in the post-war era, at the height of the Cold War, were kind of operative there. Um, and, you know, for me, that was a very interesting area to study because I kind of saw it as the microcosm of everything that had been done to the country in the 20th century and also, uh, you know, what had been the problems with it. Um, and, you know, once I started living there and working for a couple of years, then things, you know, I started becoming really interested in various aspects of rural, regional life. And they kind of led me to different fields of inquiry. Um, yeah, I, I can I can really see how that would would come about. But also drawing on your your various things, your various scholarship, your various uh, degrees, I guess, your education, how all of that would would play out in lots of lots of interesting ways. Uh, Kaveh, I wonder if you can just tell us a little bit about the work that you've done on the Iran-Iraq war before we uh, before we move on to some of the more oil focused work, if possible, please. Sure. Um, well, um, I was living, you know, I, like I said, I, um, in between 1988 and 90, 1991, um, I lived and worked in Khuzestan. Um, I was a graduate student in the U.S., but at the same time, I got a position through the University of Tehran to work on post-war reconstruction of the rural areas. So I started working a lot with peasants in villages, in rural areas, um, 
uh, you know, doing that work of kind of uh, seeing how this war-devastated region could be reconstructed, but also on the side doing my own ethnographic work of uh, investigating how rural people had fared, um, not just after the revolution, but through the course of the 20th century. You know, what role, what kind of agency, what... Uh, uh, what role had they played? How had they been dealt with, with these bigger factors, uh, you know, global, national yeah. factors that had affected their lives? Um, you know, you you know, this kind of links to your previous question about, um, you know, how one goes from one field to another. Uh, I, it, this kind of, this work, this ethnographic work transformed my life uh, because it really threw me into a profound crisis. All my preconceptions were kind of, um, you know, were suspended because, you know, here you are, you know, with, uh, you know, kind of thinking that uh, from a position of sympathy, you know, class solidarity and sympathy, you know, thinking that, well, you know, farmers, peasants had been uh, just a kind of... Uh, uh, instrumentally used by, you know, states, by the World Bank, by these big global projects that just been victimized by these processes of, uh, of development and that they really had not been able to kind of resist it or have a voice in it. And lo and behold, I mean, what I came away from that experience was that, um, uh, and you know, I'll give this to you in a in a in a in a kind of a formula. I I came to the conclusion that the Iranian Revolution, far from being an Islamic revolution, had been a provincial revolution. Right. Okay. That it had really, you know, what had happened was that these the regions, the periphery, um, the grassroots, had kind of really challenged and overthrown the monarchy from the bottom up, um, and. This was also the case with the war. I mean, the war, the Iran-Iraq war for me was, um, you know, looking at its impact was an eye-opener. Um, yeah. Uh, not just because of the devastation, but also because of the kind of politics and the kind of uh, social engagements it had uh, it has stirred up. So I'll give you two examples, uh, and I'll leave it at that. Uh, <laughs> one example was that... Uh, Every single person, every single young man uh, that I met had volunteered to fight in the war. Uh, so it was not that they were forcefully recruited, that they had been ideologically manipulated. Uh, you know, they had actually kind of, this was a war that they felt that they were compelled to do, to, to get, kind of get engaged in because not only they were defending their homeland, but they actually believed in this project that, uh, you know, uh, the revolution should be defended, that, uh, you know, the, the hostile forces, Iraqis and all, and, you know, the, and their supporters, Kuwait, Saudi Arabia, United States, UK, etc., were in the wrong. So they, you know, they felt it's a just war and it's a defensive war. Yeah, and this was really important. The second thing was, uh, you know, my view of nationalism and political ideologies was completely altered, because in the village, for example, that I was living, you know, it was a tiny village of three hundred. Uh, at least uh, nine hundred Iraqi refugees had lived there for two, three years uh, as refugees. These were Iraqis that were expelled by the Saddam Hussein regime. They didn't speak any Persian, Lori, uh, even local Arabic dialects of, uh, of Khuzestan, uh, but they were deemed as uh, a fifth column because their ancestors were either Shia or, uh, or Iranian, but they felt Iraqi. 
They right. kind of self-identified as Iraqis. So the you know nationalist angle would tell you, or national sentiments, or national scholarship would tell you that you know they you know they would be seen as the other. Instead, because the Islamic ideology was really what was motivating the population at that time, uh, they had been kind of welcomed as a victim of a secular and a uh, enemy state, and they had been kind of uh, given refuge to at in people's homes uh, as fellow Muslims. Yeah. And this was kind of it. Really forced me to kind of rethink a lot of these categories uh, that we kind of operate with, uh, you know, in terms of you know. Uh, identity politics, in terms of political ideologies that motivate people, they're far more fluid. Uh, and in moments of crises like the Iran-Iraq war, they really came forth and created, uh, you know, cocktails of social interactions and solidarities and relations that were kind of unfathomable to me prior to going there and witnessing it firsthand. Um, so, you know, yeah, so there was a lot of really fascinating, interesting things that were going on that... Uh, I, you know, that as a serious scholar of what was taking place in Iran, I was not aware of. And I would say that um, a lot of this has to do with the kind of scholarship that I see on on Iran. A lot of it is textual based. A lot of it is focused on uh, on elites, on political elites, on economic elites, on what the state is doing, rather yeah. than doing ethnography and sure. uh, looking at everyday life of ordinary people and trying to kind of take that into consideration uh, to understand what the, the bigger dynamics of what is happening in, in society. So, yeah, the Iran-Iraq war for me had that, uh, uh, you know, that light bulb moment where I started seeing things in a, you know, or understanding the dyna dynamics of that society in a very different way. Yeah, I, I can certainly see how that would how that would be the case. Hearing you speak about it and reflect on it, I wonder what what the the legacies are. Do you think then it, we're seeing obviously myriad different crises that the Islamic Republic is facing right now? What do you think the legacies of the the Iran Iraq War are in in contemporary Iran? Contemporary Iran, I should say. Well, um, I just wrote last year a long essay on this, um, you know, and I think the, the I mean, obviously, um, um, you know, the this was a huge event, you know, a million casualties, you know, untold economic, uh, physical damage, um, you know, at, at many, you know, at least three million displaced population, um, you know, many things happened. Um, the legacy is conflicted. Uh, the legacy is uh, the legacy of Iran-Iraq war is uh, very much uh, still in flux. Uh, I think it's a, a, a pivotal issue in today's contemporary Iran in the way that it's being uh, it's being used by fact you know factions within the ruling elite as well as ordinary population and ordinary population is itself very diverse. So if you're from the west of the country, which was kind of most affected by the war. Uh, you would have very different, uh, you know, sentiments toward it than people in far away provinces, you know, in the east of the country. But I would say that um, a lot of the political debates and uh, ideas about, uh, uh, you know, where the country should uh, kind of move forward uh, to or, you know, where it's leading to are still being formulated through a language and through... Um, uh, 
ideas about the war. Um, so I'd say, um, you know, so for example, let me give you two concrete examples. One is that uh, given the present day tensions between the U.S. and Iran, uh, the ruling elite, the conservative, you know, ruling elite, you know, Ayatollah Khamenei, the leader, and even Rouhani, the president's cabinet, they're all kind of framing what is happening now with the war years of the 1980s, which they want to present as a holy period where everybody was in unison and there were solidarities facing against a, you know, outside enemy. Yeah. So they're saying, you know, basically they're saying, look, we're on a war footing and we are confronting the same situation. So we should accept economic hardship. We should be ready for sacrifice because this is yet again another holy war that is being imposed on us. Ordinary people far feel a lot more resentful toward that because they feel that the 1980s, while they were, it was a period of solidarity and equality. At the same time, it was a period of uh, tremendous political manipulation uh, and kind of the suffocating of, uh, you know, diversity of critical ideas of political dissent. And they want anything but to go back to those years. Yeah. And there's a huge tension between these different uh, versions uh, of or kind of interpretations of the warriors that kind of very much persist, uh, you know, in today's, in today's Iran. Yeah, and I think we can start to see how that plays out in the in the range of different protest movements that we've seen over the past 10 years or so perhaps right yes absolutely yeah yeah i mean uh, you know um, in many ways i mean i think well again they're kind of complex answers to that you know to, yeah. to the protests and and all but let me let me put it this way that you know, Iran had to deal with a big demographic uh, transformation. So, you know, in the 1980s, Iran had one of the highest rates of population growth in the world. Now it has one of the lowest. Uh, it, you know, the rate of population growth was about three, three and a half percent in the 1980s. Now it's about 1.4 to 1.5 uh, percent. And a lot of this has to do with the development policies, you know, uh, adopted by the Islamic Republic, quite successful in kind of controlling uh, population growth and done from the grassroots upwards, which is quite interesting. However, uh, the important thing is that the vast majority of present-day Iranians weren't even born in, you know, in the, during the, that time or were just kind of quite young. Uh, so they were not adults. They don't, you know, their memories are not political and social memories, their memories of uh, living in times of uncertainty under bombardment, uh, you know, the, the grim years of the, the grim war years of the 1980s. Yeah. So, you know, it's not that they, you know, the, you know, majority of Iranian population now does not think of the war years as a period where they could make a decision uh, as citizens as to whether to support the war or resist it. They just feel like they were um, traumatized uh, by the experiences of, the, you know, uh, privation and uh, shortages and, uh, you know, bombings and, uh, you know, and, and, and violence. So, you know, there's a, there's a big disconnect between uh, big chunks of population about, you know, how they have lived through and what kind of memories they have of, of the warriors. And I think, you know, resentment about 
the way that the war was carried out is the prevalent uh, sentiment. So a lot of the, you know, you refer to the protests, the waves of protests that uh, occur in Iran uh, uh, on a regular basis. I think uh, a lot of them are kind of indirectly a rejection of this kind of international confrontation that the ruling elite wants to kind of pursue. So you've, you've hinted at it a couple of times, Kaveh, and I'm conscious we've taken up a great deal of your time and we've not had a chance to talk about oil. And what we're going to have to do is, is record a second one of these at some point to talk about oil and, and Iran's oil economy and the impact of oil on the Iranian state itself. But you, you've been hinting at this this broader confrontation. And I wonder if you could say a little bit about the the context of, of the, the current manifestation of Iranian-US tensions and, and, and what you think could happen happen if there's any optimism for, for de-escalation in, in fractious relations? Um, well, it's, you know, the sad thing to say is that uh, we live in truly unpredictable times at so many different levels. Um, what the Trump administration will do is not predictable. What the Iranian regime will do is not particularly predictable. Uh, this is a relatively recent phenomenon. I mean, you, know, you could, uh, uh, you know, uh, a few years ago, maybe a decade ago, certainly at the time of the reformist movement, you could you could predict uh, in what ways the internal, the quite significant internal frictions within the ruling establishment in Iran uh, would translate into foreign policy. Yeah. Uh, you know, under Khatami, uh, President Khatami, for example. Nowadays, you can't because uh, the impact of the U.S. rejection of the, um, you know, atomic accord, the Iran atomic accord, has led to the further consolidation of the military establishment and the security establishment in Iran. So the role of the elected government, uh, the, the, the the cabinet, the majlis, the, the, the parliament and all that, is becoming less and less uh, influential uh, in terms of determining foreign policy. And uh, for the security establishment, uh, this, is, this could be a golden opportunity, uh, if it doesn't get out of control, to basically say that, look, we're in, you know, the country is in a vital, uh, you know, uh, uh, crisis, and we need to kind of militarize at any cost. You know, any kind of dissent, any kind of um, uh, disagreement with the official line um, will lead to the weakening of the country and our defense against uh, quite an unjust and bullying international order. So, you know, the, the, this is not this is a recipe for, for disaster because these are people who are not necessarily open to negotiation. They see their interests, material as well as uh, existential interest in kind of maintaining a state of war to the extent that is possible. So uh, their choice has been to kind of, their strategic choice has been to kind of do a war by proxy, by, you know, uh, finding allies in, in Iraq, in in Lebanon, in, uh, in Syria, in Yemen, and so on and so forth, to kind of keep away the the confrontation from Iranian borders as much as possible. Uh, on the other hand, the, the Trump administration is quite is unclear what is what is the long-term strategic interest of this kind of confrontation with Iran, except that 
uh, Saudi Arabia and Israel and the Trump administration are hell-bent to kind of uh, uh, blame Iran for all the huge crises that exist in the Middle East because of the, you know, the deadlock that their own policies and their own interests have, have caused. So I, I'm afraid that it's, uh, you know, anybody who kind of tries to predict uh, where things will lead is, uh, you know, is 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 well wishing. We don't know. We can only hope for the best sure, and yeah. kind of resist this kind of militarization as much as possible. Yeah, well, we can certainly hope, and I'm sure there are many of us who are who are hoping and and exerting a great deal of energy, hoping that that things will not get worse. But anyway, Kaveh, thank you so much for your time. It's been absolutely fascinating talking to you about about part of your work, and I, I reiterate my desire to talk to you again about the oil and the impact of oil on Iran at some point. But uh, but pleasure. Thank well, you, Simon. Thank you, Kaveh. It's been absolutely fantastic to talk to you. So thank you so much. And thank you, everyone, for listening. Thank you.